Yes, indeed. You are listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swath Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. These past few days, we've been observing NADOC Week, celebrating the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Today's show is going to reflect the voices of the people behind those achievements. First up, we have Thomas Mayer, a Torres Strait Islander man born on Larrakia country in Darwin. He's also the National Indigenous Officer at a construction union and an advocate for the Uluru Statement from the heart. He's going to be chatting to us about his work on the statement and where we should be looking to from here. After that, we're going to talk to Corey Tut, a Camilleroy man who runs Deadly Science, a program which encourages Indigenous students to stick with STEM subjects by sending them books and equipment across the country. Finally, we'll be speaking to Kalinda Griffiths, a Yaru woman and epidemiologist at the University of New South Wales's Centre for Big Data Research about how Indigenous people are represented in the Australia's official statistics. And as always, we want to hear from you. You can join the conversation by texting in on 0409 945945 or tweeting us at Backchat FBI. To show us all what a beep lying, beep backstabbing, beep treacherous, beep beep she is. Thanks, Colin. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Earlier this week, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Ken Wyatt, put forward a proposal to recognise Indigenous peoples in the Constitution. In his announcement, the minister said he wants to see a referendum on the issue within three years. The move from the Morrison government comes two years after the Constitutional Convention, which produced the Uluru Statement from the heart. Thomas Mayer was one of 250 delegates to the convention, and we've got him on the phone right now. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Thomas. Thanks for the invitation. No, our pleasure. So what was your role in the regional dialogues and the Uluru Constitutional Convention? So I was elected out of the Darwin Regional Dialogue, which was one of 13 that happened around the country. And each of those dialogues elected um, people like me to uh, go to the culminating meeting in the heart of the country at Uluru. So that's how I got involved, yeah. Thomas, you've written a book about the process leading up to the Uluru Statement, which comes out in October. So what was the process like behind that? How did it work and just how many people were involved? So there was around 270 people and, um, you know, like any large group of people, there's, we don't always all agree. So uh, about 20 people walked out, but <coughs> and we endorsed the Uluru Statement from the heart with standing acclamation on the last of three days at Uluru. And it was an incredible moment because, um, like, it, it was it was tough uh, tough dialogue to have, you know. We were talking about the rule book of the country, the constitution, um, and how we wanted to be empowered in that document. And what we did was we rejected symbolic recognition and we said that we want our recognition to be um, substantive with a voice to parliament. Do you have an example of a story from your book which really stood out to you? Oh, there's so many amazing stories. There's 19 remarkable people that I interviewed in the book and I, um, and I narrate each story. And um, one that stands out is um, Jill Gallagher. Jill Gallagher is the first treaty commissioner in this country. And, um, and I learned that as a youth, she, she went to 19 different schools. She was um, a middle child of, of 10 siblings. Um, and if you could imagine the hardship that she went through, you know, just 19 schools, um, up to primary school, 
just following work around and, and to become the, the first treaty commissioner um, was an amazing story. And also her insights on, on treaty itself, you know, and, uh, and how the Uluru Statement uh, helps with the treaty process. It's stories like Jill's and the dialogues around that that resulted in the Uluru Statement. Uh, but what is the statement and what exactly is being called for? So the Uluru Statement is, um, it's, it's only about three minutes to read. It's beautiful, eloquent, eloquent words. And um, it's actually all on a canvas. There's a canvas that I carried around the country for 14 months. And um, just building a people's movement. It's, it's really a, a compelling document to see. But what's important is the proposals. And the proposals are what's in the NAIDOC theme this year, Voice Treaty Truth. And, and the theme is a call to action. It's, it's about a, a people's movement. It's, it really is uh, a live political document. And, and it's an invitation to the Australian people to walk with us and achieve those things. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Shami and Swatho. We're speaking with Thomas Mayer, a union officer and advocate of the Uluru Statement. Now, Thomas, Indigenous Australians Minister Ken Wyatt has called for a referendum on Indigenous constitutional recognition. What are your thoughts on the move? Well, it was positive because it was a it's a, it's a big shift from Malcolm Turnbull who dismissed uh, the Uluru Statement in 2017, without a disrespect. Um, but there's still concern. We're, we need to um, watch what's going on because they're talking about symbolic recognition at the moment. Um, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders will not accept mere symbolic recognition in the Constitution. It must be empowering. And so we're saying that uh, that it must be a voice, which is a representative body. Our previous representative bodies have been defunded or repealed, um, just crossed out by the, the whim of the politicians. We're saying we want it to be the rule that we have a voice, a representative body, on the issues that affect us. We don't know too much about what the details of Ken White's proposal is, but ideally, what would you like to see put to the people in the referendum? Well, it must be put to the people that a First Nations voice be enshrined in the Constitution. That's the only constitutional reform that we said that we want through the only national process, which was the process that led to Uluru. I mean, it's what the experts call a constitutional moment, that that moment when we endorsed the Uluru Statement and the call for a First Nations voice in China, the Constitution was so much bigger and passion and then you know, not taking no for an answer, going and fighting for it. Um, but we need more people to join us to say to uh, Minister Wyatt and the government that the only recognition that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want is a voice um, enshrined in the Constitution, and we support that. How concerned are you about the division we're already seeing within the coalition when it comes to the referendum? Well, I think it's normal nowadays in politics. There's always going to be those that will never budge, you know, and that's at both extremes of the political ex- political spectrum. Uh, but I think what is really important is that we, the Australian people, just build the pressure, um, much like uh, same-sex marriage. You know, there the were politicians on both sides that didn't want to accept that. Uh, you know, that that love is love, and uh, it should go beyond, um, what, you know, a male and female. Um, it's it's a reasonable proposal that there be a voice enshrined in the constitution, and we've just got to build that people power until those people are so uncomfortable that they must support it or we just get them out of the way. 
How difficult do you think it's going to be to get that yes vote, uh, especially in all the states and territories? It's going to be very difficult. Referendum is very difficult to win in this country. But if people want meaningful reconciliation, if people want to um, repair the damage, and if people want to empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so that we can close that gap between health and life expectancy and incarceration rates, the only way to do it is to empower our people and give that power through the Constitution so that it cannot be taken away again. Thank you so much for chatting with us this morning, Thomas. Thanks, guys. That was Thomas Mayer, the National Indigenous Officer at a construction union and an advocate for the Uluru Statement about calls for Indigenous constitutional recognition. Stay tuned because we'll be moving along to our next interview with Corey Tutt, a Kamilaroi man who runs Deadly Science, a program which helps Indigenous school kids around Australia engage with science and other STEM subjects. Fact chat. Text 0409-945-945. According to this year's Closing the Gap report, major social and financial barriers facing Indigenous school children could exclude them from the jobs that require an education in science, technology, engineering and maths. One Camilleroy man has taken it upon himself to help students stick with STEM subjects throughout the various levels of their education, sending books and equipment across the country to the students who need them most. Corey Tutt runs a program called Deadly Science with the aim of encouraging Indigenous school children to stick with STEM subjects at both secondary and tertiary level. Thank you so much for being with us right now, Corey. Good morning, everyone. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good. We're, We're doing good. well. Yeah, thanks doing. for coming in. So energetic. No one here can really see, but uh, Corey is a very energetic person, so we're very happy to have you. That free coffee's in. <laughs> <laughs> You're the founder of Deadly Science, so can you tell us more about the program? So Deadly Science is about inspiring the next generation of Indigenous scientists. Um, you know, if we look at our history, we've got so much we've got such a rich history with science with the world's first fish traps you know if you read the book dark emu we've got you know we used to actually grow grain and make bread so we've got this huge history which is you know it's pretty much unknown we don't really learn this stuff in school and basically uh, the way deadly science works is trying to merge the two together so we can provide these resources for these kids so they can grow and tell their story as well as tell the story of Western science. So what inspired you to start Deadly Science? Like, how did it start? So as a kid, I wanted to be a zookeeper. Like, <laughs> that was my dream, being oh, a zookeeper. Fair enough, yeah. So um, I was often told I couldn't do it. You need a degree in zoology, you need a PhD, you know, you need all the bells and whistles. Yeah. Um, turns out you don't. Um, but I kind of, I wanted to inspire the kids that were like me, that sort of had a bit of a rough background and, you know, they are talented and, you know, often you get told you can't do things and I wanted to sort of change um, the perspectives and, you know, you're, you're an inhibitor in many ways and you need to see the talents you do have. So so what kind of feedback have you received from the schools you've donated to? Just jumping straight into that now. Oh, great. Um, we've been seeing so many photos back. We've got astronomy nights that are happening. So in the communities, we've got actually, we've been sending telescopes. So they have community astronomy nights and one of the places up in the Kimberley where we send them books, they're doing like toad nights where they go and find cane toads, but they're also bringing the telescope out as well. And Sounds dangerous. No, it's not that <laughs> dangerous. <so. laughs> um, I would love to know, like, what was your experience studying science as a kid? Like, what, what do you think is wrong about the system? So what, what's wrong about the system is it doesn't cater for everyone. Um, so as a kid, I always thought about these animal superpowers, right? Why does a blue tongue lizard have a blue tongue? Blue means poison in the animal kingdom, right? Why does a tiger have stripes? 
camouflage and you know it's also a repellent for insects so those are the things that i sort of got me excited about science because they are kind of like superpowers and then you know you you sort of can expand that to the stars and the ocean and you know i learned in a very different way to most kids um because i was sort of like i wanted to know you know i wanted to know the answers and i think with indigenous kids they're very much the same you know they're very intelligent they want to know why certain things happen and what why they do these animals do these certain behaviors um yeah so a big part of deadly science is that you receive a lot of resources uh from other people uh to share with indigenous students uh one of those resources is a signed book from a prominent uh stem professor brian cox and from dr carl as well (laughs) uh how does it feel knowing that your program is really gaining traction so it was really funny um, how I got into contact with Brian. I was on Twitter and I had this message from Brian Cox. And I, you know, I'll be honest, um, I didn't really, I knew who Brian Cox was, but I didn't really know how big a scientist he was. He's and, a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, he, part of the reason why it works is it's because it's authentic and it works and it's from the heart. And he's a very, very kind man. And it, it feels very special because... I didn't actually get a, a signed book of one of his books. I actually got a signed book that inspired him, which was The Cosmos by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. And now that book is, you know, it's in my house, but I always treasure that because that's a book that inspired him. Um, my The book that inspired me was Harold, Harold Cogger's Reptiles in Colour, 1985. Um, so that's what I, it was a good touch to meet Brian and get that. And he sent some books out to schools as well. So he sent about 80 books out to different schools around Australia. That's amazing. He's a legend. Yeah, he's a legend. Um, so, look, the, the closing of the Gap report is pretty grim, especially for Indigenous school kids who want to get a STEM education. Uh, what do you hope deadly science will achieve for these students? So my buzzword of this week is believe, right? Yeah. So if you truly believe you can do something, you can do it. And these kids are incredibly talented. They're incredibly intelligent. They just need the resources. They need the tools to succeed. And I hope that Deadly Science is around for many years to come. It's not necessarily about Corey Tutt. It's, you know, I work for the University of Sydney. There's multiple people that are helping out with the program. It's a Deadly Science family. And I hope that we can provide the tools so we can see Indigenous people be well represented in science. You're working on a Deadly Science podcast as well. What can people expect from that? People can expect to be inspired because we're going to meet different Indigenous people working within STEM and also just inspiring people that, you know, they have a story to tell. They necessarily didn't go, you know, some people that went through private school and they got the best education, but they also have their own challenges. And then there's people like me that sort of, you know, instead of going the direct route, they went around the block, you know. So we're going to be telling stories of different people and we're going to be inspiring people. I would um, love to just, like, close off by asking you, like, do you have an example of a student's life that's been changed by this program or a, a story that's touched you? Definitely. Yeah. So there's a young fellow that was on Q&A recently, young Noah Noble from Robinson River, right? So he asked me a question, why stars blink? And um, Q&A took that on board, ABC yeah. Q&A. Why do stars blink? Why do stars blink? Yeah. And I, I, it's just slipped my mind. I can't actually <laughs> remember the answer. But his life's been changed because I now get a call from him every week with an animal question or, you know, a question he wants answered. And, you know, he was our deadly junior scientist recently. We do these awards and his attendance. So he, they had issues with his attendance, this kid, right? 
he had a 40% attendance level for the year and he has not missed a day of school since he was on Q&A. Oh, that's adorable. Curiosity is the most important thing to foster in children. And that's exactly what your program is Kids are the doing. best scientists. Absolutely. And so are you guys. Oh, that's very, very <laughs> kind, but completely untrue. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Corey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Corey Tutt, founder of Indigenous Outreach Organization Deadly Science, speaking to us about Indigenous representation in STEM. And you have a podcast coming out. When is it coming out? So I'm aiming for Science Week. It's going to come out in Science Week. It's going to be when is the, that? Uh, it's in just a couple, more, a couple more weeks. Cool. So um, keep an eye out for it and be inspired. Wonderful. Yes, that's right. Next up, we are going to be speaking to Kalinda Griffiths, an epidemiologist at UNSW, about the representation of Indigenous people in the country's official statistics. But right now, we are going to go to a song. This is Dobby's "Sick As." Enjoy, everyone. The Australian taxpayer even pays for the toilet paper she uses. Does she go down to the chemist to buy the tampons? Or is the Australian taxpayer paying for those as well? Back Chat, your alternative to talk back. That's right, you are listening to Back Chat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM and we're celebrating NADOC Week on the show today. Kalinda Griffiths is a Yauru woman and an epidemiologist at UNSW Centre for Big Data Research. She'll be chatting to us about the representation of Indigenous people in the country's official statistics. Hey, Kalinda. Hi. <laughs> so you work with data almost every day at UNSW Centre for Big Data Research. How is the process of collecting data about Indigenous people different to that relating with non-Indigenous people? So when we look at it from the outset, it, it doesn't look that different. But Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to disclose their identity uh, when they are getting counted in official statistics or for official statistics purposes. So things like going into hospitals or or um, within the census. Um, and what this means is that there's this interlinking with identity. Um, and this is kind of embedded within Australia's history around um, how we've identified Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as well. Um, and so historically, we know that, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have always been counted, but we've been counted for the purposes of exclusionary reasons um, prior to 1967. So basically, we were counted just to be ousted from the official reporting. Um, and so that identity um, came off subject, subjective um, value, values as well. Um, so people would just look at someone um, and assume. Um, so we're talking about stereotyping um, and we're talking about uh, um, making judgment calls on people that may not necessarily uh, be reflective. Um, and so that's kind of where where we start from. That's the sort of starting point in regards to um, the disclosure of identity. Um, people want to be able to identify, but there's these tensions um, between uh, governments and, and, non, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Just how important is it to talk about Indigenous data collection against the backdrop of Australia's colonial history? Yeah, so we fought for the right to be counted um, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, and these are hard discussions to have uh, when when we look at it. I mean, the 1967 referendum was absolutely uh, a pinnacle of, of um, people saying, um, well, I guess it was a national moral imperative of people saying, we want Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to be counted. Um, and so that arose, you know, from that historical 
non-counting um, or counting for the purposes of, of um, knowing who's who in the community um, for reasons like being t- taken away, um, for things like um, uh, uh, being excluded from uh, uh, from bars or whatever it might be, um, going back to that almost apartheid era. Um, and so that history um, and our our push to actually be seen and be counted to be included is part of um, our, our fight for citizenship within the nation. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's incredibly important. Are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people still being underrepresented in the country's data sets? Yes. So um, it depends on which data set we speak about. Uh, but again, we can't... So which again, ones would you say more so than others? So... Again, it depends on the jurisdiction um, and it depends on the history of, of um, the relationship between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples within those areas and, um, and, uh, and those uh, jurisdictions and the people counting them. So things like the census, which is nationally collected, um, there are ways in which um, people or the Australian Bureau of Statistics have addressed that. Um, and we also do a post-enumeration survey with that um, to ensure that people are counted. Whereas things like the hospital admissions records, um, we see variations between 46% and 97% of accuracy of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people counted within those um, data sets across different jurisdictions. Things like um, birth registrations, um, we know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander babies are undercounted. Um, so uh, 17% in Queensland we know um, under registration, 18% in Western Australia. Um, and so... It just it depends on the relationship, um, and also then that varies by um, location as well. So up in the Cape, we know that that number is a lot higher, um, and so uh, and also up in Kimberley region, we know that that number is a lot higher as well. That proportion is a lot higher. So um, yeah, I, it depends on which data set, um, and it depends on the relationships um, that Aboriginal peoples have with um, with. Uh, I guess, those institutions. And it also depends on the location as well. Um, I mean, identifying within data sets isn't typically at the forefront of people's brains, particularly if they're going into emergency services. Um, and it also may mean that you're exposing yourself um, to what we know to be, um, you know, systemic sort of racism and, and discrimination within those services mm. as well. Um, yeah. What's the extent of the impact of this underrepresentation on the social, health, and economic outcomes of Indigenous people in Australia? So we don't have we don't have a like we haven't been able to quantify that um, at all. But we do know that um, you know underrepresentation means uh, for say birth registrations, it means that we're missing out on things like citizenship rights. Um, if an Aboriginal baby isn't identified with um, or isn't registered at birth, uh, what ends up happening is that uh, everything that a birth certificate that arises from that birth registration is needed um, isn't available. So things like Medicare, access to education. Um, there isn't a principal out there that would turn away a, a, a child trying to come to school without a birth certificate, but there may be challenges that families face um, without that. Um, and it's often not until people get to that older age that, um, you know, it comes to things like getting a driver's licence uh, or a passport. Um, 
So those sorts of things can be incredibly challenging. And then you add in, um, I know up in the top end, we've had issues around um, cultural understandings in regards to getting our passports. So um, jurisdictional issues um, versus national requirements. So things like having a name change due to a death um, and then people not having changed their name over um, on or either one, not having a birth certificate, but then having their birth registered um, as their original name, um, although they're not allowed to speak that name. So those sorts of things arise as well. You're listening. Creates... Pardon? Sorry, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting you. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Well, and, and so that, that compounds the issue um, even further as well. Uh, and, yeah, and then when it comes to the counts, so that's, that's just going on the citizenship rights sort of stuff. But going on the counts, um, if we don't have proper numerators and denominators, we're not getting accurate reporting. The story might be the same. So what we might see is we might see trends, but the actual number might not be um, be accurate. And this has to do with methodologies used um, and approaches uh, to to the I guess that data that that may be um, uh, inaccurate. How do you think we should go about addressing this disparity between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people? Uh, when we speak about disparity. Um, you know, we need to, I think we need to unpick the term disparity a little bit. Um, so disparity uh, means both an inequity and an inequality. Um, and inequity is embedded within social injustices. And so we need to actually describe those social injustices, which is why the context around colonisation and all of those issues are really important to discuss and disclose. We may not necessarily be able to, again, quantify um, the reasons why or quantify uh, the impact of colonisation on health, um, but we need to be able to speak about the social injustices that arise from it. And the other side of that is inequities. Um, and when we speak about that, um, we're speaking about just differences, um, not in... in um, and we're only speaking about numbers here, um, so variations in numbers. So when it comes to disparities between... Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in Australia. Um, we succeed in so many ways. Um, and so our connection to country, culture, um, all of those things, we are ahead of the game in many aspects. Um, when it comes to health outcomes, um, which is embedded within those spaces, um, we're speaking about things like uh, what you'll see in the national stats uh, on a day-to-day sort of basis, you know, so like uh, heart disease, cancer, um, you know, cancer set to be the second biggest killer for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the coming years. Um, so it's about recognising that, identifying that, but also discussing it within the context of all of those other things that, that work towards that holistic sort of ideal of health. Um, and so as we start to see um, cans come through, we need to prioritise that. So that's sort of, we can't speak about one without the other, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Kalinda, could you tell us about any specific projects you're working on at UNSW Centre for Big Data Research? Yeah, so um, we have a Centre for Research Excellence um, looking at... Um, uh, cancer services for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 
um, so improving cancer services. Uh, and this is, uh, um, I mean, it's come off the back of a previous Centre for Research Excellence. Um, and, you know, again, this is about prioritising cancer needs um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples um, and cancer services um, to make sure that as we start to see um, this increase of cancer arising, um, increasing rates of cancer arising, um, we're able to, I guess, push the demand or provide for that demand um, and, and provide it well. Um, again, you know, we, there's a couple of different themes in that. Um, my focus is primarily on um, uh, treatment and outcomes. Um, and so I work in... Uh, it's a very new area in, in um, identifying issues with the data, um, but palliative care is where we're, um, where I'm focusing um, my work at the moment. Uh, and so, because we don't know uh, the quality of um, palliative care uh, in regards to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, mm-hmm. um, we have some anecdotal evidence around, you know, what constitutes a good death, um, but we don't have a lot of information around um, the actual, uh, I guess, um, the data quality. Thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Kalinda. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> that was Kalinda Griffiths, an epidemiologist at UNSW Centre for Big Data Research, speaking to us about Indigenous representation in Australia's official data sets. Well, that's all we've got time for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sikolovska and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Thomas Mayer, Corey Tutt and Kalinda Griffiths. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a fun new track. What's it called, Swether? Uh, it's called Dispossessed by Gani Yigi. Uh, thanks for listening to Backshot, um, guys. Um, we'll catch you all next week. Happy NADOC. <laughs>